Thanks for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. Welcome to the Great Prayers of the Bible series. Our calling is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We are a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. To learn more, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Move into the message this morning. I'm uh, Paul Joslin. I am the missions and mobilization pastor here at Waterstone, uh, and I'm excited to be with you all this morning, preaching on prayer as we wrap up this series. Uh, I, I hope that this series has been a good series for you. As Danielle and Nick or Jesse's come forward to talk about prayer, I, I just feel like each week I've had something to, that I've learned that's new about prayer or a different way I should pray, and, and it's great. Um, but two weekends ago, I had the privilege of preaching on prayer. And I also had the opportunity to live out uh, what I preached on prayer, which is always a little scary. And so uh, if you weren't here, that's okay. Two weeks ago, my message was on how in all circumstances, we should praise God for who he is, thank him for what he's done, and then petition him with what we desire. And uh, Saturday night when I finished the message, I walked outside and our all-wheel drive car, uh, there was a tire that had been punctured with a nail. It was completely flat. I was like, oh no. So I changed the tire, get it fixed, and I'm thinking, we're probably going to have to buy four new tires for this car. Sunday night, I get home from taking our missions team to the airport. Uh, It's about midnight. And as I walk into the house and am headed to bed, I step in a puddle of water about this deep. And my living room had flooded. Uh, We're renovating a condo and I had uh, punctured, I was putting up baseboards. It's an 18 foot board and I caught a pipe this big. And it had punctured and flooded. Uh, And then Monday, we have the plumber come out. He fixes it. So we get our water back on. We take the other car to get the tire fixed. Thankfully, we don't have to replace all four tires. But on the way, our second car breaks down. (laughs) And I kid you not, my wife just looked at me and she said, what in the heck is happening in our lives right now? And I said, I don't know, but I am never preaching on prayer ever again. (laughs) And now here I am. Two weeks later, preaching on prayer, so you will have to forgive me if this morning I'm a little skittish. Uh, in fact, my wife, she left town this weekend. She, she is in Dallas with her family, and uh, it was a trip that was planned beforehand, but I think she was pretty glad that she got out uh, since I'm up here, because she doesn't want whatever might be coming my way this afternoon when I get done. So uh, if you would, uh, I would like to start by praying this morning, because I think I'm going to need it uh, later. So um, yeah. Heavenly Father... God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for this church, Lord, Waterstone, and uh, the way that you are moving in the lives of of the people of this community, Uh, but God, also the the way you are moving outside of these walls. Um, So Father, we pray that this morning as we come before you, as we dive into this text, as we wrap up this series on prayer, um, God, that that we would know you more intimately, uh, that we would come to know ourselves and the the spaces uh, within our hearts and our souls that, that we need to shift and realign to who you are. And God, I pray that uh, my words today, and I pray that they would come from you, um, that you would meet us here in this space, that you would speak to our hearts and our souls and convict us where we need to be convicted, and that, God, we would turn ourselves over to you um, and your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So have any of you ever heard a story as an adult that you grew up hearing as a kid 
And when you hear the story as an adult, you begin to see things that you maybe didn't see earlier. Maybe it's a movie uh, that you saw. So the one for me is uh, in college, I saw The Grinch Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey. And there's this scene in there that there's a ton of innuendo going on that when I was a kid, totally missed it, right? So, so as I'm an adult, I see there's things happening in the story that I didn't before. Or, or a classic one is Romeo and Juliet. We come to this story, and when you're young or in middle school or high school, and you're reading this story, and you're like, oh my goodness, they're young, they're in love, it's so beautiful. And then you get older, and you're like, they weren't young and in love, they were just dumb. Like, they were just young and dumb and made a lot of poor decisions that led to a really poor outcome. And I even consider myself a romantic, but I look at that story, and I'm like, what were you thinking? You're just dumb teenagers, right? So you get perspective a little later on on a story as a child that you thought was, was the best or, or whatever. And I sometimes feel that way with scripture. I feel like there are stories that I come to as an adult and I read them and I grew up hearing them in Sunday school or in children's books. And then as an adult, I read it and I think, this is not a children's story. This is Game of Thrones. And there's something wrong with the way that we are telling these stories. And an example of that, Jonah and the, the fish, right? So Daniel even preached on this one a, a couple weeks ago, did a great job. But look at this cartoon. I mean, it looks like Finding Nemo, first of all. And then second of all, it's a story about a man who gets eaten and swallowed by a fish and lives in the belly of a fish for three days. Now, if any of you are fishermen or, or enjoy fishing and you've ever cleaned a fish or been on the inside of fish or even if you've ever cooked a fish, you know how badly fish stink, right? Like fish are not cute. And the inside of a fish, it is disgusting. And you think about the story and a man being inside of a smelly fish for three days and like, eh, that's not cute. That's not a like fun story. That's disgusting. And then you zoom out and the whole point of the story is that God is about to exact his wrath on an entire city of people because they are so violent and so evil. And yet we tell it to our kids before they go to bed at night like it's a cute tale about a guy and a fish. Or take, for instance, Noah's Ark. This is a classic, right? All these animals, I mean, just think about it. These animals come to a boat and there's water and what could go wrong? I mean, the animals even come two by two. It's like they're married. It's so cute. And there's a rainbow in the story. Like all of this should make us feel good. But God is wiping out the entire human race because of how sinful and evil and violent they are. And he's starting over with a family that's the only faithful people left on the planet. This is not a children's story. And you get into books like the book of Judges and you have all sorts of crazy things happening like, like tent pegs being driven through skulls. And man, I mean, it is, the Bible can be brutal. And I, at one time I was having a conversation with a friend and she's, she wasn't a believer, she's an atheist. And as we were talking, we would often talk about religion or uh, the Bible or politics. And, and she would say, there's no way I could ever believe in your God, because the book that he wrote is so full of horrific, terrible, violent things. I mean, and all of your good guys in the book turn out to be bad guys by the end of the story. And I just, what is the purpose of that? What's the benefit? And, and it's hard to argue against that. There's some really horrific things that happen in our sacred text. And I think what's so interesting is we at times feel the need to sanitize our stories. In an effort to defend the people that, that are written about in our scripture, we sanitize these stories and we try to make the things that happen in those stories less bad than they actually were. 
I mean, the story that we're looking at today, the story of David and Bathsheba, we look at it and we sanitize it because it can't actually be that bad. I mean, David was called a man after God's own heart. Like, he can't actually be doing the things that the text implies he's doing. And so we try to sanitize these stories and we try to, to make them a little cleaner. We, we try to look at only the good parts and forget about the bad because the bad just seem too horrible to even comprehend. And I want to give a warning up front today that as we look at the story, this, this story of David and Bathsheba, I'm, I'm not going to sanitize the story. And in fact, it's a pretty brutal story that when you get into the details of what the narrator is trying to tell us about what David has done, it is incredibly heartbreaking. It is pure evil. And I think it's important that we do that because when we sanitize these stories in scripture, when we sanitize the stories that God has given us, they begin to lose their power. The way that we try to coddle these stories and these people and make them less bad than they were eliminates the reality of what God is trying to tell us in these stories. And so as we get into the story of Bathsheba, just a 30-second overview, it's a story of a king who sees a woman that he desires, has her brought to himself, sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, and in order to cover up what he's done, he has her husband come home from a war and when he refuses to sleep with her, he has him killed to cover up what he's done. And I mean, it's a, it's a pretty terrible story, but when you get into the details, it's even worse than it sounds at first glance. And if you are, are sitting here wondering, what in the world does this have to do with prayer? I promise we'll get to that. Um, but you're gonna have to hang in and understand where this story is going and what it's trying to tell us in order for us to understand something that I think is really important about prayer. And so I just want us to dive right in. Uh, the, the story starts in 2 Samuel 11, and this is how it begins. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now I want to pause right there, and I'm actually going to pause as we read the first part of the story, because there are so many details that are critical to us understanding. And the first thing I want to call attention to is this part where it says, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole army. You see, in this passage, this chapter, it's about 27 verses, 12 times David is referred to as sending someone. He is sending people all over the place. He's sending Joab out to fight his battles. He's sending messengers to Bathsheba. He's sending messengers to Bathsheba again. He's sending Uriah home from the war. He's sending Uriah back to the war. He's sending letters. He is sending people all over the place, all throughout this story. And the reason that's important is the narrator is trying to tell us that David is the one who's in control. He is the one in power. And everybody else has to do his bidding. And the events that follow are because of the actions David takes while he is in power. And so it goes on. It says, they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, which was the capital of the, city, uh, the Ammon people. But David remained in Jerusalem. He remained in Jerusalem, not where he was supposed to be. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. I want to pause this again, because this beginning where it says, one evening, David got up from his bed, a, a more literal translation of that would be that he got up from the couch in the middle of the afternoon. And the implication might even be that he slept until late in the day. And so he is not at war where he's supposed to be, and he's living in luxury, you see, David is using his power. He is bent on using his power for his own comfort and his own security. He's using it for himself. 
And then it also notes twice that he is on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Now, I don't know if it was the way I heard it or the way it was preached, but all growing up, I remember this story, and I remember that that David was on the rooftop, and that Bathsheba was bathing on her rooftop, and David saw her, and she shouldn't have been there, that she was somehow trying to woo David or make him see her. But the text doesn't say that at all. It says twice that David was on the rooftop, and that's important because he is in power surveying his entire kingdom, and he invades the privacy of Bathsheba. He's a peeping Tom. And he sees this woman, and she's beautiful. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. He inquires about her when he sees her and notes her beauty. And what's so interesting is the response that he receives. The response he receives from the man he sent to investigate who she was is so important to this story. And it goes on, and the man comes back to David, and he says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this is why that's important. He names her, only place in the story where she is named. And he says, she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. What's important about that, there's there's actually a couple things. The first is this, is that it's actually a rhetorical question when he comes back to David. He says, isn't this Bathsheba? Implying that he knows her. And it's implying he knows her because he probably does because Eliam and Uriah are two of his closest followers. They're part of his mighty men. There's a group of 30 men who are listed that says they fought with David from the very beginning. They were on his side and they were trying to help him attain the throne. There's most faithful, loyal people. And Eliam's father, Bathsheba's grandfather, is actually one of David's counselors, his closest advisors. So David knows Bathsheba, And he also knows that she's incredibly vulnerable because her wife and her father are off fighting his battles. And so he knows that she's vulnerable. And when he finds out that he's vulnerable, that she's vulnerable, it goes on and it says that then David sent messengers to get her. He sent messengers to get her. And then it says that she came to him and he slept with her. And this is where we sanitize the story because we tend to cling to this one line where it says, she came to him. And we think she's a willing participant. But the reality is what the text is saying is that David sent armed guards to her house and they took her and she came. And I want you to just for a moment for us to place ourselves in Bathsheba's place. And I want you to imagine that your husband and your father are off fighting a war and armed guards from the king come to your home. What is your assumption? Probably that one of them has died. That either your father or that your husband has died at the war and they're coming to bring you news. But instead, they say that the king wants you to come to the palace. And let's say for argument's sake that that the messengers even made clear David's intent to Bathsheba. That he wanted to bring her to the palace so that he could sleep with her. What option does she have in this moment but to come to the palace? A vulnerable woman cannot refuse the wishes of a king. A vulnerable woman cannot stand up to armed guards and say no. And the second thing I want us to notice about this story is that every time Bathsheba is mentioned in this story in reference to David, 
She is called the woman. The servant comes and names her, so David knows her name. The author has introduced us to her name, and yet every time she is referenced, she is referenced as simply the woman. And in fact, she goes unnamed for the next whole chapter and then into chapter 12 until she gives birth to Solomon, David's successor to the throne. She goes unnamed for two entire chapters from this moment until then. Why? What is the author communicating? He's saying that to David, Bathsheba was not a person. She was not the daughter of Iliam, his friend, and she was not the wife of Uriah, his servant. She was a nameless face and a personless body, an object of his desire. And when he saw her, he took her for himself. See, the brutality of this story is that it is not some consensual love affair between Guinevere and Lancelot or Romeo and Juliet. One commentator, he puts it this way. Just as intercourse between an adult and a minor, even a consenting minor, is today termed statutory rape, so the intercourse between David and his subject Bathsheba, even if Bathsheba, under the psychological pressure of one in power over her, acquiesced to the intercourse, is understood in biblical law. In biblical law, it's understood this way, and so presented in this narrative to be a case of rape, and what today we call power rape. And the victimizer, not the victim, is held accountable in the story. See, the brutality of this story is not just simply that there was a a love affair that David covered by committing murder. It's that he actually raped the woman he was supposed to protect. You see, as the king, he had a God-given responsibility, a God-given authority. He had been placed in power by God in order to stand up for the vulnerable in his kingdom. He was required by God to stand up for people like Bathsheba, that when their husbands and fathers are off at war, he was supposed to be their protector, that the vulnerable would be safe in his kingdom because God had given him the power to protect them. And instead of David using that power to protect her, he uses that power to abuse her and take her for himself. And the reality is, as we look at this story, as we look at what David has done, it's easy to identify with Bathsheba. Because we all have stories, and not to minimize what happened to her, but we have stories, right, of people who have used power against us in ways that wasn't fair. People who are in authority over us, who used their power to, to trip us up or to accuse us or to hurt us in ways that they shouldn't. I mean, maybe some of us, we we have the spouse who every time we get into an argument, rather than apologizing, they make us think it's their fault and use power over us to make us think that we're the ones who are always in the wrong. Or or maybe someone abuses power against us and maybe it's a, a coach or teacher who mistreats our children and we're powerless to help our children receive the justice and the treatment we think they deserve. Or maybe we have a friend who dismisses our wounds and discounts our stories and and excuses the things that have happened to us as no big deal. Disempowering us from the things that have been done to us. Or or maybe some of you, you, maybe some of you, you had parents who told you to hide the bruises that you had because they didn't want people to know what went on in the household. 
Maybe some in this room have a similar all too familiar to Bathsheba, where the person who is supposed to protect you and care for you betrayed you and abused you. See, we are Bathsheba. We know what it's like to have people in our lives who have power and authority over us use that power against us. And it leaves us broken and it leaves us devastated. And I need to pull aside for just a minute before going any further in the text because this has been wrecking me this week. This has been just just tearing me apart because I think in our society and, and in our churches specifically, we have far too many Bathshebas, far too many women who have been mistreated and abused. See, the problem with with male-dominated societies like Bathsheba's or our own is that when a woman comes forward and says, I don't feel comfortable with what happened to me or, or this was wrong, we say, you know what? You shouldn't have dressed that way. You know what? You shouldn't have been there. You shouldn't have looked at that person that way to give them the hint that that's what you wanted. You're just looking for attention. And we excuse what happens to women in our society and in our churches, and we say that their stories don't matter and that they go untold. And we have to repent of this. I mean, just this week, I don't know how much you follow news in in the church world, but just this week, a a major evangelical church in Chicago, its entire elder board and pastorate resigned. Because four years ago, their former pastor had been accused of an affair. And when he was accused of an affair, the elder board and the, the succeeding pastors, they covered it up and they pretended it didn't happen and they discounted the story. And when more stories came out and more women came forward and to the point where 10 came forward and said, this man made me feel uncomfortable. This man did things that were inappropriate to me. This man treated me the way I do not deserve. And they continued to gloss over it and pretend it didn't happen. They finally got to the point where the evidence was so much that they had to resign because they broke the trust of their congregation. And unfortunately, it's not just that church. This is happening all across our churches in this country. Because we are living in a time when we allow the sins of men to be placed on on the woman's shoulders. And it is wrong. And we have to repent. We have to stop discounting these stories. It is displeasing God and it is angering him that we are doing this. And unfortunately, this church's story is our own story. And even though we may not have the same problems as them, we are still the capital C church. And when they fall, we fall. Their wounds are our own wounds. And we have to move through this and repent. And we have to become a church that hears women's stories, that lifts them up, that stops discounting or covering over things that are going on in our society. We have to repent. What's so interesting about this story is after, after this happens to Bathsheba and, and David receives word uh, uh, that she's pregnant. See, this is another area where we've sanitized it because we think it's this love affair that he wants to marry her, but he has no intention of marrying her because what he does is he calls her husband home from the war. And when he gets home, he, he pretends, pretends that he's just asking about how the war's going. And he says, how is Joab? How is the army? How are the soldiers? How's the fighting going? And after he gets a report, he says, you know what? You, why don't you not go back for a little bit? Go and spend some time with your wife. 
and, and go and I'd like you to just have some good time with her, little vacation, and, and sleep with her. And Uriah says, there's no way I can do that. When the, the Lord and my friends and my men are fighting a battle. And so he sleeps with David's servants in, in the, the servant quarters, and he refuses to go home. And David is so bent on trying to cover up his sin that he makes him drunk the next day, hoping that that'll lower his inhibitions where he will go home and sleep with his wife so that if he gets her pregnant or if she, he thinks he's gotten her pregnant since she already is, that, then he'll re- take responsibility for the child and the secret is stuck with her. But Uriah is a noble man and he refuses even when he is drunk. Even when he is drunk, he is more honorable than David and does what he couldn't do sober. And so David sends him back to the war, but this time he sends him with a note, a death sentence that says to the general, when you're fighting and it's the fiercest fighting, pull back from Uriah so that he falls and dies. And the plan works and Uriah is killed. And what's so fascinating about this story, what is so interesting is the response that David has to this event. Because as he receives word that Uriah has been killed, it's so interesting. He, he's a man who, he repent, or he didn't repent. He, he, he grieved when, when his, his greatest enemies were killed. When Saul, the king who, who was king before him, is killed, David grieves for Saul. In fact, he's so upset that Saul has been killed, even though he's his enemy, that he kills the man who killed Saul. And when Abner, a general, revolts against David and he is killed, David grieves and mourns for him. But when Uriah the Hittite, one of his close friends and followers who he betrayed, dies, this is how he responds. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. It's no big deal. People die all the time in battle. Uriah, it's just one more casualty of war. Don't let it stop what we're doing. No repentance. He is calloused and he is calculated. He doesn't care about his friend who has just been murdered at his own hand. But then notice Bathsheba's response. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. That sentence, a more literal translation of it would be, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned and lamented for her husband. Three times in one sentence, it calls attention to the relationship that's been violated and broken. And the word for lament there, the way that she is mourning, the lament is a prayer crying out to God for him to see what has happened to her, to see what has been done. You know, when, when I've heard this story told before in the, in the past, it's always, well, it wasn't really a time of mourning for her, but that's not what the text says. She's lamenting and asking God to see what has been done to her. And it goes on and it says that after the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house. And it's the same verb that was used earlier of the messengers. He took her. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You see, God 
saw what happened to Bathsheba and Uriah. He heard her cries. He heard her lament. And it angered him what David had done. And while political leaders and kings like to participate in cover-ups and and to hide their corruption, God and his prophets do not. And so God sends David, or Nathan to David. And what's so interesting is, is in that one sentence, up to this point, David has done all the sending. He's sending, 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 sending. God sends Nathan to David. And from this moment on, the entire story flips on its head and David has no more power. And God is in control and he has the power and he sends Nathan to confront David for what he's done. And he comes to David and, and he comes in a way that, that's it's masterful what he does with David. As he comes to him and he says, David, I need your help. You're the king and there's this thing going on in your land that you need to know about and I need your help on what we should do. And so he comes and he says, there, there's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has a ton of sheep and the poor man, he only has one sheep. And this one sheep is so important to this man. It's like a child to him. He's raised it from the time it was young. It's one of his children. It eats from the same plate as him. It drinks from the same cup. It lays with him. It is one of his children. It is like a daughter to him. But when the rich man had a visitor come, instead of taking one of his own sheep to kill it for the visitor, he takes the sheep of the poor man and he kills it, and he feeds it to his visitor. And what should be done? What do we do? It's so fascinating because Nathan, what he's done is is he's moved David to the side of justice. And David, it says that his anger burned against that man. It burns against that man, and he starts yelling about how this man, he deserves to die. He must be killed for what he's done. Does this man think there's no justice in my land? Does he not know that I'm a king who will dispute justice and and dispense justice on those who violate it? And, And he says, this man has to die. But before he does, he has to pay back four times what he has done to this poor man. And Nathan, in one of the most intense moments in all of scripture, turns to David and he says, you are that man. And what's so hard about this passage, what's so hard about this story is that while we can identify with Bathsheba and the ways that power has been used against us, the truth is that we are also all Davids, that we have misused and abused power that has been given to us. And I just wonder, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I wondered what would happen if Nathan came to Waterstone. If Nathan were here and he were looking at us, or if he came to our homes, if he came to my home, what would he say to us? How would he call us out on our sin? How would he call us and say, you are the one? Would he come to us and say, you are the spouse? who refuses to apologize and makes your husband or wife think that they are always wrong. That you are the parent who mistreats the coaches or the teachers because they can't have any repercussions against you. That you are the friend who discounts the stories of your friends and the wounds that they've experienced. That you are the church that mistreats and doesn't listen to women. What would he say to us? Would he say that you are the one who's abused the power that you have been given by God against the people 
that you were supposed to protect and care for. See, I mean, why are we talking about this? This is a brutal story. And and what does this story have to do with prayer? And what in the world are we talking about here? You see, what's so interesting about David, the reason why even though a rapist and a murderer can still be called a man after God's own heart is because he repents. When Nathan says, you are the man who has abused your power and mistreated those you were supposed to care for, this is how David responds. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord, that's it. And a couple of things we need to notice about this, this repentance is that, that David does not try to cover up the sin that he's committed. I mean, if you think about it, it would be so easy for David to just kill Nathan on the spot to have him killed, to continue the cover-up and to continue hiding. He's already committed murder to hide what he's done. What's one more? After all, the sword devours one as well as the other. But he doesn't. He repents. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. He doesn't cover it up. And not only does he not cover up his sin, but he also doesn't deny his sin. He's the king. He could easily say that that's a lie. That didn't happen. It's fake news. That's not what happened. I didn't do that. But he doesn't. He repents and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Not only does he not deny or lie about it, but he doesn't justify his sin. I mean, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for David to say, you know what? Being a king is really hard. I've been through so many battles. There's so much that's gone wrong in my life. I deserve this one thing. I mean, how often do we do that with our own sin where we justify it as as some sort of of benefit to us, some sort of, of collateral compensation for the things that have gone wrong in our life? I deserve this. But he doesn't justify it. In fact, he says later in Psalm 51 that, that God is right in his anger against David for what he's done. There's no justification. And he doesn't minimize his sin either. He could have easily responded to Nathan and said, well, you know what? It was just, it was a small lapse in judgment. I didn't mean for this to happen. It was just a, a, a mistake It wasn't evil. It was just an unintended thing that that came about. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't minimize. He calls it what it was, which was evil, which was sin. He sinned against the Lord. And I wonder for us, for myself and for you, when, when Nathans come into our lives and they begin to point out the areas where we have sinned, how do we respond? When they call us to repentance and say what we have done is evil or wrong, how do we respond? Do we respond like David, where we just, we don't cover up our sin, we don't deny, we don't justify, we don't minimize the things that we have done, but we claim them as our own and responsibility for them and turn to God and ask for forgiveness, to repent. Repentance is admitting you did something wrong and rejecting that thing that you have done. And that's what David does. And that's the reason why even he and how evil this story is can still be called a man after God's own heart. 
Because the beautiful thing about God is that, is that God hears our prayers for repentance. You know, when we started this series, Nick said that, that prayer is asking God and God listening. Repentance then is the prayer where we ask God for forgiveness and God listens. But hear this, it is the one prayer, the one prayer that we can ask that will always, always, always be answered in the affirmative. Anytime you come before the throne of God and ask for forgiveness, he will always say yes. No matter how deep or evil or wrong your sin is, no matter the ways that you have abused power, he will say yes when you come to him and repent and ask for his forgiveness. It is the one prayer, the one prayer that will always be answered yes. And we see that in the life of David. There are consequences to what he's done. His life is a mess after this point. But he is forgiven by God. And there's this beautiful passage in scripture that comes out of this story. It's Psalm 51, and it's a prayer of repentance David writes after Nathan comes to him and confronts him on his sin. And where before David is calloused and calculated and unrepentant and care, doesn't care about what's happened to Uriah, here he is brokenhearted over his sin. He is devastated by what he's done. And he prays for God to cleanse him and make him whole and forgive him for the evil he's committed. And what I would not like us to do today, collectively, is to take a moment to think about the areas in our own lives, the areas where we've sinned, where we've misused and abused the power that's been given to us. To allow the Holy Spirit to search us, for God to search our hearts and, and convict us in the areas where we have been a David. And in a moment, after we do that, I, I want us to pray together Psalm 51, to ask for God's forgiveness for ask him to cleanse us whiter than snow, to make us clean, to restore us to the relationship with him. Because the only answer to our sin is to pray and ask for forgiveness, to repent. So please now, I'll, I'll do the same from the stage, and if you would, from your own seats, ask God to speak into your heart and tell you the areas where you need to be convicted of your sin. And then in a moment, together, we'll read Psalm 51 corporately. you would please stand and read with me as a prayer, Psalm 51. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, when I think of David, I think of that conversation I had with my friend a few years ago where she said, all of your good guys turn out to be bad guys in the end. And she's right. David is a bad guy. He's a rapist and he's a murderer and he committed terrible sins. But that's actually the point of the story is that all of the good guys or bad guys do turn out to be, (laughs) all the good guys do turn out to be bad. And all of them turn out to be fallen. Everyone in scripture that's, that's heralded as a hero is actually a deep sinner and full of flaws. The beauty of our book is that God works in the midst of that to bring grace and salvation and mercy and hope. That he doesn't let those stories end with the devastation. David repents and is forgiven. What's so interesting about that that psalm we just read is is there's a reference in there to hyssop which is a branch, and it's a reference to Exodus 12, where God is about to come, and the the Spirit of God is going to wipe out the firstborn in all of Egypt. And he says the way to prevent that from happening is to to slay a lamb and to, to dip the hyssop in its blood and paint the doorposts. And God will have mercy on that house and pass over. See, David when he asks to be cleansed with hyssop, he is asking for the blood of the lamb to cleanse him, to make him whole. And that is the same prayer that we have. It is a slain lamb, the blood of that lamb that makes us whole, that gives us the forgiveness that we so desperately need and desire. It's so fascinating to me that the the moment David turns is the story of a slain lamb that thousands of years before Christ came to be our slain lamb for us, David was already hearing that story told. And when we know that the lamb has sacrificed for us, that, that we can be forgiven, no matter the depth of our sin or what we have done, that forgiveness is ours, we can come to the table 
and rejoice in the forgiveness and grace that God has given us without condemnation and without shame. The other part of this story that, that's sometimes hard for me is, is what about Bathsheba? David repents, that's wonderful, and he comes back to God, but what about her? Where's the justice for her? And some of that happens in that David's life is full of chaos and, and punishment from this point forward. Even though he's, he's repented, there's still consequences to his actions. But the beauty in Bathsheba is not in the consequences that David experiences. The beauty for Bathsheba is that from this point on in scripture, her character, anytime she is mentioned, her character is never, ever disparaged. And she is mentioned as one of the women who is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what's so fascinating about that is as the mother of Solomon, as an ancestor of Jesus, she is not mentioned as David's wife. She is mentioned as Uriah's wife. It is as if God is saying, your story will not go untold. You will be remembered. What happened to you will be remembered. And out of that devastation, I will bring the savior of the world. You see, our stories, we align with both David and Bathsheba. But when we come to the table, when we come to communion, as we're about to, we remember that there was a good king who did not abuse his power for himself, but laid down his power in the interest of others. And there's a good king who's a slain lamb that from his blood we may be cleansed and have no shame and no guilt. But in him we also remember that, that our stories do not go untold, that his grace is sufficient even for the darkest moments of our lives, that he brings beauty from our pain, redemption and restoration. And so as you come today, as you come to the table, as you take the, the body of Christ, which was broken for you, and the blood of Christ, which was shed for you, come knowing that all of your sins have been forgiven and been washed clean, and that your story doesn't go untold, and that through the blood of Christ and his brokenness, he's bringing restoration and beauty to our stories. And come and take and eat. In Christ's beautiful name, amen. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.